Welcome to Geared for Growth. I'm your host, Mike Mortlock from MCG Quantity Surveyors. Today on our Tax Time special episode, we're bringing back Jeremy Yanuzelli, accountant extraordinaire, and we're talking all things capital gains tax. We talked to him about the different entities you can purchase an investment property in and what that means from a capital gains tax point of view. We also talked to him about the principal place of residence exemption, but mostly the in and the out of purchasing an investment property, how you can minimize your capital gains tax by dotting your I's and crossing your T's when you purchase a property and what you can do on the back end as well. He gives some great insights into how he is able to fundamentally change the capital tax, capital gains tax payable for his clients. It's a really insightful interview with Jeremy and I'm sure that you're going to learn something from this as I did. Here's Jeremy. So today we're going to focus specifically on investment properties, right? So capital gains tax, as as we know, you buy an asset, you sell it for a higher amount, you're going to get taxed on that amount. Before we go into the nitty gritty of, of how to minimize that, how does it work from different entities? Because we've talked in the past about buying in your own name or buying in a family trust or a company. What are the differences with capital gains tax across those? Yeah, so four main entities, it's a good way to disclose the four main entities that people are utilising for their investments. One would be your individual name, which is your mum and dad purchasing the property, for instance, whoever it may be, person. And if you hold the property for longer than 12 months, that's from a contract date and very specific. The purchase actually occurs on the contract date, not so much the settlement date. And again, from a sale perspective, it occurs on the contract date, not the settlement date. So that's a good little point to put into position. You might have settled in July, but signed the contract in June. Unfortunately, that becomes a 30 June 2023 capital gain tax obligation. But personal discount over 12 months of ownership, no discount under 12 months of ownership. Then we've got corporate entities. Corporate entities will include things like a superannuation fund, a company, a trust, or a unit trust. Start with the superannuation fund. It too receives a capital gain discount to one third or 33%, 33.33. One third discount for assets held longer than 12 months uh, and less than 12 months, it pays capital gain tax based upon its rate, 15% with no discount applied to it. Companies, they don't have any discount at all. They pay tax at the company tax rate, whether it's 25 cents or 30 cents, depending if it's considered a passive or non-passive entity. And then you've got things like trusts. Now, the trust actually really doesn't pay any tax. And this is a misconception that a trust pays tax. It does pay tax if it doesn't distribute the profit, which sounds a bit crazy. But nevertheless, a trust will pay tax based upon the marginal, sorry, based upon the beneficiaries that receive that distribution. Yep. And those beneficiaries will be paying tax at their marginal tax rates. So if a trust distributes to individuals, they will receive the 50% discount on behalf of the trust. If the trust distributes to a corporate beneficiary, that corporate beneficiary being, say, for instance, like a company, PTYLTD, again, it doesn't receive a capital gain discount. So we've got to think, guys, when we've got a trust owning the property, trust doesn't pay the tax. It's the beneficiaries that receive the distribution. They're the ones who pay the tax based upon the conditions of the CGT at the time of taxing or the event in their names or in a corporate beneficiary's name. So very challenging, very hard to give you a spill of many years of knowledge into 30 seconds, but just think whoever's receiving the distribution, they receive the CGT concession or no CGT concession based on that entity. 
I think that's simple uh, enough, and I think all the more reason to get a property specialist accountant because the end outcomes of what goes back in your pocket can really be uh, really be tweaked based on the entity that you hold it in. But let's talk about this capital gains tax. I mean, for a lot of people, they're not necessarily thinking about, oh, one day I've got to sell this property, but they will. But there are ways that you can minimise your CGT obligation on the way in and the way out. So for people that are maybe thinking, oh, gosh, that's 10 or 15 years away, Jeremy, that's future me's problem. What should they be thinking about minimising on the way in? So the way in really comes back to the the individual or the corporate entity that is buying the particular property. Um, So if you've got a goal of, say, buying a property and holding it long term, well, then one would consider potentially a company is not the right idea. Company is much more of a transactional entity, trading, buying, selling, building, developing, all those other things. So ideally looking at more of a trust or an individual basis of purchasing. So the purchase is the purchasing structure is the way that you minimize the tax on the way in and you get that benefit obviously on the way out. Uh, ensuring that you're keeping all your records of the purchase. A lot of things that I see people miss are the soft costs in relation to purchasing a property, which may be things like PEXA fees, settlement charges, legal fees, or conveyancing if you are using a conveyancer. Things like repairs and maintenance, which were considered capital in nature uh, on the way in that you may have had to buy a property. Um, or potentially another major one is if you bought a property in disrepair and had to do some immediate repairs and renovations to the particular property prior to it being rented out or available to be rented out, then those costs will form part of your cost base. And then you've got your other hard costs, which will include the purchase price, the stamp duty. So main things to consider is capturing all of the significant records, all of the significant numbers that relate to the overall purchase price of the property, and then the purchasing structure, whether it is in your name or your wife's name or your partner's name or in a corporate entity's name. These are the little things uh, that we as an accountant start to consider when we're looking at the overall business purpose of the property. Um, And a great example is very simple. A client of mine purchased a property in the wife's name. She was a much lesser income earner at the time. Her plans would always have children, a large family never returned back to work. The property was slightly negatively geared in its earlier years and then became positive. And when we sold the property, the husband was a higher income earner. The husband, the wife essentially earned no money. And therefore, when the property was sold, we're paying significantly less tax based upon a 50% discount and her marginal tax rate compared to if the property was owned 100% in the husband's name, where we would have been taxed at the highest rate of close to 47, 48 cents in the dollar. I'd love to hear an example of that where the genders are switched, right? The stay-at-home dad and then the high income earning, you know, CEO of Qantas lady uh, that I've forgotten her name, but I'm sure that happens. It just stereotypically tends to tends to be one hundred percent. I'm seeing more yeah. and more women starting to earn a lot more money than, right. than, for instance, their their spouses or husbands. So <laughs> it's a big shift happening in the market. It's a positive shift. All, all power to them. That is great, but not what the show's about. <laughs> um, talk to us about um, talk to us about the cost base. So you mentioned the cost base before as a bit of a, a key word. Now that's kind of the launching point for where you calculate your capital gains from. The difference between your sales price and your cost base. But we often hear things will increase or decrease your cost base. So decreasing the cost base would be things like depreciation, I guess. Increasing the cost base might be something like your solicitor's fees. Can you explain the difference and whether decreasing or increasing is better? Yeah. So obviously, increasing the cost base will reduce the capital gain tax that we pay. 
because we're increasing the cost of which the sale goes against. And a decrease of your cost base is the opposite. That reduces the overall element. And then obviously it increases the potential amount of capital gain tax. Um, again, you mentioned a lot of the cost base items that get included, such as your solicitor's fees, PEXA costs, if, if your solicitor is using the new method of transferring property via PEXA. There's lots of settlement charges you'll see when your bank statement comes in on the closing uh, closing statement. And that's something that's often missed. And that's something that we pick up quite regularly when clients provide us all the information. Marketing fees, styling fees, property agent fees, potentially, or the sales agency fees, they're all form part of your cost base. So essentially, you've got to look at what you haven't claimed in your tax return while holding the property as an investment and what you have paid in relation to either you purchasing or you selling. And some things I see is potentially a proratement of any LMI or borrowing costs. That's a big one that many people miss. They may not have owned the property throughout the whole duration of the lender's mortgage insurance being amortized over five years. So essentially anything that you haven't claimed um, throughout holding the property, you can then add it to your cost base. One of the major things, which is decreasing your cost base that not many people talk about is the add back of division 43. Um, you know lots about Division 43, so I don't think you quite often get this one asked of you and you're interviewing people, but maybe do you want to share Division 43 and what that means for people, Mike? Yeah, it's it's normally something that gets heckled at me at the end of presentations uh, because it's sort of like I might do a presentation about the virtues of tax depreciation and, and despite what we're about to talk about, I still see a huge value in depreciation. But people will say, okay, well, with depreciation, you actually have to add it back. So the depreciation that you claim will reduce your cost base. So if you sell a property for a million dollar profit on what you purchased and you claimed $10,000 worth of depreciation over that period, well, your cost base is now 990000 so there's an extra 10k of profit that you've got to pay tax on. Um, but there, there are a number of reasons that I want to hand over to you why it still makes sense. And, and to answer that question in a little bit more detail, Division 43 is, is the, the capital works, the, 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 the fixed assets. So it's not carpets, blinds, kitchen appliances, hot water systems, those sorts of things. It's more the, the structural components. Yeah, so the Division 43 gets added back to the cost base, essentially decreasing it. Um, and what happens from an accounting perspective is throughout the years of you owning that property and claiming the Division 43, we've been able to get a marginal tax benefit on it based on your marginal tax rate. So if you're a very high income earner, you've been able to get around about a 47% tax deduction on that Division 43 that gets claimed in combination with the Division 40, the pool plan equipment, of course. Nevertheless, when we do sell it, we do have to add back that $10,000, as you've mentioned. However, what I really try to educate people on all the time is, yes, we add it back, but then if we've held the property for longer than 12 months, we do get a 50% discount. So where having Division 43 may not be beneficial is if you buy the property and sell the property within 12 months and claim the Division 43, well, you've got the deduction on one end, you're paying it back on the other, the net difference is zero, you haven't gained or lost. But if you've held the property for longer than 12 months, we've got 100% of the deduction while claiming throughout our normal years. But then when we add it back, we get a 50% discount. So really, we're only actually paying back 50% of the benefit that we've received on the Division 43. So that, as I call it, and we were discussing earlier, that 50% is coming from the sky. That's the rain money. 
um, that you're obtaining a benefit from when selling the property via the CGT. So anybody out there who's listening, still get a depreciation schedule, still claim your Division 43. Yes, it needs to be added back. But if you've held the property for longer than 12 months, there is still a genuine 50% benefit net that you have received in most cases based on your marginal tax rate. So that's probably just confirming that little bit of a myth. Uh, another one that people don't regularly talk about, accountants don't regularly enforce, ATO uh, don't regularly enforce either, is the Division 40. So we, we do need to add back the Division 40 that we have claimed in most cases. However, that's on the basis that the contract has been segmented into what you're actually buying. And 99.99% of contracts out there will specifically stipulate that you've just purchased a property for X price. It doesn't break down what the pooled plan equipment was, what the building value is, what the cost of the fence was, what you're buying. Um, so it becomes very hard to be able to do an adjustment when you sold the property to say, well, I'm selling you the oven at a closing written down value of $1,200. We tend just to say that we've sold the property with the closing written down value based upon what's our what's in our report. So very difficult to police, very difficult to understand, very difficult to stipulate because the way we sell and buy doesn't necessarily give us the cost basis of the pooled plan equipment. We, we very much leave that up to the quantity survey to create that purchase report. And when we sell, we really try to sell with everything based on a carried down written value. So that is the value of the goods with inside the house less what we've depreciated already. That's the best way to kind of explain it. Mm. I wouldn't look too much into it, though. It's very hard to, as I said, to break it down and segment it accordingly. Uh, traditionally, the Division 43 is what we'll all add back yep. um, as part of the capital gain uh, tax calculation. Yeah, I think about uh, 10 or 15 years ago, I used to see the plant equipment listed for commercial properties only at, at say, uh, one in 10 or one in 20 transactions today, never see it. And I've never, ever, ever seen it in a residential property. So yeah, yeah. that's why we tend to just say, look, it's it's really only the division 43. You get that 50% exemption over 12 months, and then it's at your marginal rate. The other thing um, is the time value of money as well, right? I mean, look at inflation such as it is at the moment. A dollar today is going to be worth a lot more than a dollar uh, in 20 years, whether Philip Lowe's successful or not, right? Absolutely. And that Division 43 helps you get the refund in today's dollar. And then when you're paying it back 50% of it in 10 or 15 years time, substantial amount of benefit of receiving that dollar 15 years ago compared to what, what it may look like in the future. Well, it's great to hear that direct from the, I won't say horse's mouth, but the accountant's mouth, <laughs> <laughs> the accountant's unbearded mouth. Now, um, we've talked about the CGT on the way in. So there's a number of transactional costs and even little fiddly things like your lender's mortgage insurance, you know, if it hasn't been completely amortized, these are all things that whether you're thinking about selling the property now or, or later on down the track, you need to keep accurate records. And, and I picked up something that you said, you know, we, we grab this cost when the client gives us that information. So in a way, it is a partnership. You are relying on that information coming forth from the client, right? So when we all get those annoying little things to fill out from our account and saying, you know, what, what have you spent here? Can you give us the information here? It might be a little bit annoying because no one likes homework, right? But there's a reason why you're asking those questions. The Give for Growth Property Investing Podcast is presented by our business, MCG Quantity Surveyors. 
you're an investor or a property professional looking to get the best tax depreciation deductions for yourself or your clients, please get in touch with us at mcgqs.com.au. It's our mission to help as many property investors as we can to maximize their claims and maximize their property education as well. Yeah, 100%. And what we do, and I'm starting to see more of it being done by other accountants as well, is create work papers. You know, accountants, we create these brilliant work papers for our internal purposes. Uh, What I've started to do over the last three, four or five years is rather than me creating work papers internally, I'm creating work papers so that the clients can actually utilize it as well. So I've created a bit of a CGT cost-based Excel, which really labels pretty much everything that we'll need. And because we've done hundreds, if not thousands of these over the past 15 years, we've kind of got to know what we should expect. And there'll be the couple of anomalies here or there of things that come left left to field. But nevertheless, we've kind of jotted down everything that we expect to see on the purchase and the sale. Uh, we've even gone to the extent of people being able to show their ad back of Division 43. But you, you do need to make sure that you're really liaising with your accountant throughout that data collection process, because if you're terrible with your paperwork and you're giving your accountant 5% of you know, the 100 that they need, there will be holes, there will be gaps. Mm. Um, so I'm really encouraging everybody to create a bit of a purchase documentation folder on every property that they buy or you know, create a CGT cost-based Excel on every property that they buy because it does become quite tricky to make sure that you're obtaining that information in the future when it does come time to sell. So yes, a partnership is important. Uh, I think the best words that you've said is that you really need to liaise together uh, because we're not here to fight with you to waste your time and collect data that's useless. We're here to make sure that everything that we include, the inputs that go into that return, it's there to favour you and really bring you in very accurate cost base and very accurate CGT calculation. And if you could get it from the government, you would get it and you wouldn't ask for it. But the government doesn't want to give you any hands handouts in terms of, of no. minimizing your capital gains. They want that money, right? That's it. And the tax <laughs> office, Mike, have become so intuitive. They know so much about us. Now, in the past, you know, we were pretty chuffed when we could see what the people are earning in their bank accounts from an interest perspective. But now the tax office, they're telling us what shares people have sold. They're telling us that your clients interacted with Bitcoin or cryptocurrency and that there would be cryptocurrency transactions. They're telling us what properties were sold with the contract date and the settlement date. They're even going as far as telling us when a client sold their PPOR to consider that if the principal place of residence is a principal place of residence, or does it potentially need to be prorated from a capital gain perspective? So it's very intuitive, and their data collection sources now are becoming so accurate that it's very hard to hide or very hard to make a mistake um, or an accountant not be able to capture something of relevance within the return. So guys, they know a lot, and they're doing this not for any other purpose other than the betterment of the Australian public and capturing you know, all the, the tax that's getting lost in the black holes that have been around for such a long time. Mm, I was trying to, I was going to talk to you off air about how to get on this Panama Papers uh, list of, of influential tax avoiders, but sounds like they're shutting the doors and you're right. They are. It is important, right? I, I think, you know, the Aussie value of, of, of a fair go and, and fairness is important to us. And we don't really want, you know, wealthy individuals or corporations to find their ways to get around the tax office just because they're under resourced. So it is a good thing. It's just, you know, it's hard to be on their team all the time. Let's talk about um, 
let's talk about the way out. So we talked about ways that you can increase your cost base to pay less capital gains tax, but on the way out, there's opportunities as well, right? Depending on what's happened to the property over the over the time you've owned it, and and what happens when you actually dispose of it. Yeah. So obviously, making sure that you capture anything that you've spent in relation to owning the property that you haven't depreciated that forms part of a cost-based reconciliation. Uh, on the way out, you've got to make sure you capture all your costs. Styling is a big one I'm seeing now. A lot of people are styling the, styling the properties ready for sale. A lot of people are looking at potentially six-year rules, CGT six-year rules. That's a big one. Uh, proradament or exemption of capital gain tax for a certain period of time based upon the time it was your PPOR and based upon the time it was an investment if the six-year rule doesn't apply. So there are a number of different concessions involved in making sure that you are maximizing your CGT benefit um, or the CGT reduction, I should say. So they're things that you consider and a timeline of the property becomes very important and they are based upon individual circumstances. There's not a one rule fits all. It really is based upon what you've done with the property during the time or the duration of your ownership. A lot of things that I'm seeing at the moment, I'm starting to see clients sell their properties as Costs have started to increase and they want to capitalize on the recent amount of growth that we've had during the COVID pandemic period. But there are external ways of minimizing your tax. And I'm doing that personally for myself. We've sold a property recently in my wife's name and she's got a large portion of the carried forward five-year superannuation concessional contribution rule, which means we can go back from 2019 to top up my wife's superannuation to the limits of 19, 20, 21, 22, and then also we've got 2023. So with the capital gain that I've made after taking into account the 50% discount, I'm then doing a uh, member's contribution with a notice of intent to claim form, which means that I'm telling the superannuation company or the superannuation provider that it is not a member's contribution, but rather a deductible personal concessional contribution. What a mouthful, deductible <laughs> personal concessional superannuation contribution. And that is a way that I'm minimizing the capital gain that I'd be showing in normal circumstances in my wife's return. But I'm now showing that as a capital gain, less the superannuation contribution that we've made on her behalf. And that is why I'm getting a substantial amount of tax benefit. So I'm channeling that capital gain from my wife to her super fund and getting a, a pretty good tax deduction on the way through. So that's one way. And um, that's one thing that I'm looking with many clients at the moment. And anyone who's bought with inside corporate structure, such as a trust, we're really looking at all of the beneficiaries that we can utilize and to putting together our trustee resolution statements to ensure that that pass through goes through that, sorry, that pass through of, of distribution goes through. And that is a way that we're really minimizing tax based upon the beneficiary's marginal tax rate. So a lot of the planning of capital gain tax is not done after the year's finished. A lot of the planning is done prior to the year finishing. Yep. And that's where we can really make those decisions to not only minimize the capital gain tax as a result versus the cost base, but also minimize the tax that we would pay based upon those subsidiary uh, tax measures in place and that we can implement as well. Wow. Um, so to 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 bring to bring you back to a sort of a a, a trotting rather than a galloping pace, because yeah. I've you know I've learned that I have a lot more to learn. Um, so Every year, the, the the government, the tax office, allows you to make a contribution to your super fund, which is tax-free, right? So at, 
the the last count it was thirty thousand dollars you can put in, but every year it kind of changes, and it would have been less for the the, the prior years that your wife uh, hadn't made that contribution. But because she hadn't, she can go back and make that five years worth of contributions in one go, and then it's kind of like the gain offsets that deductible contribution so we end with a net zero and we can wipe out a big chunk of that capital gain is that another way that, to put it? that's correct yeah and i think the the threshold by memory of super at present is about 27 and a half increasing but yeah that's a great way to look at it so if she's made a hundred thousand dollar capital gain and for whatever circumstances she's got this balancing adjustment in super that she can top it up to equivalent of 100k which is going back all those years and filling up the cups in that case there would be no capital gain tax to pay at all mm, because wow. the 100 gain versus the 100 that we put into super wipe each other out and therefore there's no tax that you know for instance my wife needs to pay yep. uh, which is a great way to minimize the tax but i suppose the con is is that the money is going into super which is money that we can't use today it's more so for our retirement but it is a plan that we do want to grow a substantial amount of wealth in our super uh, yep. because I don't know what the rules will be later on, but at present, when we do retire and as of retirement age, if we're under a certain threshold and cap, uh, the earnings on that superannuation fund at pension phase would be tax-free. Um, so that's one way, a positive to look at. Again, under today's rules, what happens in 20 years, Mike, as a disclaimer, we don't know. Um, but what we can say is that superannuation will be around for a very long time because of the reliance that the government's trying to relieve themselves of for pensions in the future. Yeah, there's a few elections to come and go before we know what it looks like in, in 20 years. And, and many more budget nights for us to go through. Maybe yeah, stay might. tuned for the next one. Uh, you're you're a regular guest on that one now. You've you've had two innings and uh, you've, you've scored a ton on each one, so we'll have you back for sure. Uh, the the six-year CGT rule, you referenced that before. So, you you really get six years to say a property is a is your principal place of residence. So right, you could buy a property in say your name, and then you could bugger off somewhere else to live for four or five years and race back in time to be able to still say that it's your property and not pay capital gains tax when when you sell. Yeah, is that right? What have that's I missed? right? No, that's right. So the rule was brought in for expats in the past. So you know they'd buy a property, they'd buy their own home. They may get moved overseas for a period of three or four years to work and their intention is always to come back. So the ATO created this six-year rule concession for that purpose um, so that people didn't have to sell their home and potentially enter back into a market at a substantially higher price. Um, but obviously with that, there becomes, you know, not loopholes, but there becomes extensions to the definition, extensions to what the purpose was set out to be. Um, and what many people do is that they'll buy their home, for instance, and they want to buy their new PPOR, they live into it for all intensive purposes. They've made the intention um, for that property to be their PPOR. So they've moved their addresses, their electoral roles, they've had all the amenities that's been connected, you know, at that property in their own name. They've shown it as their PPOR and they've lived there for a couple of years. Circumstances change. They want to move because they have kids, they want to be closer to the schools, or they may want to move closer to work and they go rent somewhere else. As long as they have not bought another home and nominated it as its as their PPOR, they can still claim this six-year rule, meaning that from the day they move out, they've got up to six years to either sell it and pay no capital gain tax or move back into the property 
Show it as a genuine intention as your PPOR, change your electoral addresses, license addresses, connect all the amenities in your name, have the intention that it's your PPOR, live there like any normal person does in their own home. And then if they decide that, hey, we want to move back after a couple of years to the northern beaches of Sydney, or we want to go live in Queensland and try the beautiful Sunshine Coast out, again, that six-year period then starts from the day they move out. Um, so it, it, as long as, again, as a disclaimer, as long as you do not show another home as your PPOR. So the six-year rule is a, is a great way for you to not have tax on the family home um, as long as you uh, do not show another home as a PPOR. So I tried, tried to tend, I tried to tread a very light-footed around this subject because it does border on this concept called Part 4A tax avoidance. And that's why I really try to educate people that can't move in it for two weeks, move back out and said, that's my intention as my PPOR. The tax office is genuinely looking for your intention to show that back as your PPOR. Mm. And that's not a two-week time frame. There's no time frame specific that the ATO request. It's more show your genuine intention. Um, so I really urge people to make sure that they don't try to undercut the system. The tax office don't play very nice in the grey area, and you need to really ensure that for all intensive purposes, it is your PPOR again if you're trying to reset the six-year rule. We get that a little bit with, well, we used to back in the day with scrapping assets where the ATO says it's got to be your intention to rent it out as is when you purchase. And people say, what's the best way to, 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 you know, to show an intention and say, we'll do it? Right, actually do it. That's, That's the best it. way to satisfy you. What you can't get in trouble if it's if it's your intention and you actually do it, everything's going to be okay. Absolutely right. Yeah. <laughs> now, what if we've owned this property that we're going to pay capital gains tax on because it is our? Uh, it's not our principal place of residence, but over the years we've done some improvements. We've done some extensions. We've added maybe a swimming pool. Probably not a great example for an investment property, but. The point is we've spent money and we've increased the value of this by our own expenditure. Now, isn't it a bit fair to say, well, if the property's grown by 500 grand, well, we might have spent 20 grand on it. So why are we getting taxed on that that part of the gain? Yeah, so it's a that's a good one. And I suppose anything that you've put into the property to increase its value and it hasn't been fully depreciated, we do add that to the cost base of the property. Um, so that's a, a fairly important understanding that you know you may have put a pool in there for a 50 grand for instance and you've only depreciated five thousand dollars of it well that remaining forty five thousand that's left for instance that's something that we can claim because it's come from your own hands it's come from your own pocket that's contributed to the overall value increase um, of the investment property i think there's one thing to note as well and, and, and a lot of people are starting to do it it's the conversion of their old PPOR into an investment when they've nominated a new PPOR. And there's two different types of methods we can use. We can use a proratimate method, which is the total duration of the ownership of that property um, versus obviously the time that it was your own home versus the time that it was an investment. Or the other method that we can use is the valuation method. This is a very important one, and I'm going through this with many clients. If you've lived in the home for a period of five years and you move out of it and you bought another home and you want to convert your old one to an investment property, you can do a valuation at the time of moving out of the property, Mike, mm -hmm. and that valuation now becomes your cost base. Yep. Now, it foregoes things that you've done to improve the property. It foregoes things like stamp duty. The valuation now becomes our new cost base, which means you only now pay capital gain tax on the increase of value 
which was the valuation taken at the time you've moved out versus the sale price. So we lose some of our cost pl- cost base additions, right? But the we payoff do. is, let's say you lived in it for five years, you uh, had it as a rental for two years, but it went up 50% over that time, but 49% of it was in the first five years when you were actually living in it. So it's not really fair for you to be paying pro rata uh, gains because the the time that it was actually an investment property didn't really gain at all, right? So that would be an example of where that would make sense. Correct. And the big thing to note for everybody is that a real estate agent is not a registered valuer. Mm. Um, they provide in a market appraisal. So the ATO do state that it needs to be a registered valuer, registered to a body to provide a current present market value, well, valuation of the property. And it can't be a real estate agent. I see many people just hand me a real estate agent's market appraisal. And I have told them in the past, it needs to be by a registered valuer with a registered body behind them. Um, so that's very important. An agent provides you an appraisal and a valuer provides you a genuine valuation, independent, um, categorized to what the market conditions were at the time of you operating or you leaving the property and getting that, that valuation report being done. Clues in the name there too, right? Because I... I uh... I'm a qualified real estate agent and I know in the training is that you can't actually say market valuation. You can't offer that as a service. You can say the word appraisal, but you can't say evaluation because you're not a valuer, right? Correct. Well, for anyone that's kind of thinking, all right, well, I bought a property as an investment five or 10 years ago, I'm selling it and whatever the gain is, whatever the tax I'll have to pay is what it's going to be. For someone that's thinking that way, what do you do with the first point of call? Do you say, actually, if we just do a little bit of homework, we can actually manipulate this value to the point of you know, possibly thousands of dollars, tens of thousands of dollars of difference? Yeah. Look, I have never come across a situation where if we've done the homework, we can't improve the position. I just never have come across it. There is so many ways to minimize tax legally. Um, I won't use the word manipulate, Mike, because <laughs> I never manipulate numbers, but we always we always reflect and show the true numbers with a minimized technique attached to it, of course. But there is always a way to minimize your tax. It's just really sitting down and understanding the transaction that has occurred and then looking at the many variables around your situation that surround the transaction as well. So superannuation is one of them that we've rattled off today, the six-year rule proratement method valuation method. There are substantial different ways to legally minimize your tax. It's just really sitting down and doing the work prior to the year end. It can't be done post. Once that year finishes, we can't go back and backdate things and change things because that all becomes quite illegal in the nature and the scheme of what you're trying to do. But if the time is spent and the homework is spent prior, that's when you can really start to look at all the techniques available to an accountant to legally minimize your tax. There you go. We can't give you any more confirmation of the value in doing that. And I love how straighty 180 you are, Jeremy. If you're looking for a dodgy accountant, uh, whether you're a client or the ATO, Jeremy's not your man. Not your man. But I love having fun with you using words like manipulate. (laughs) Thanks very much for for sharing your, your gold again today, Jeremy. We really appreciate it. Mate, Mike, always a pleasure. All the best. And thank you very much for having me on again. Cheers.